From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Not only did Russians attack the 2016 U.S. elections, a House committee says cyber trolls also stirred up trouble in the fossil fuel debate for a simple reason. These two countries are competing for markets in energy. And if there's something that Russia can do to undermine development of oil and gas in the U.S., that's less supply that the U.S. can put on the market and more room for Russia to sell more of its supply. Also, a last-ditch bid to save baby tropical fish adrift in chilly New England waters. These fish are going to die because of the water turning cooler as the fall and winter comes. So, hey, might as well take the opportunity to rescue them. You're rescuing them from a certain death to a possible survival. That and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. From PRI and the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. As the investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 U.S. elections grinds on, a House committee also accuses the IRA, that's Russia's Internet Research Agency, of trying to pit environmental activists against fossil fuel advocates. The House Science Committee, chaired by Republican Lamar Smith of Texas, prepared the report. It analyzed how that Russian troll farm, also targeted by special counsel Robert Mueller, hyped controversies about pipelines, hydraulic fracturing, and climate change on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Tim Pucco covers energy policy for The Wall Street Journal and wrote about the report. Welcome to Living on Earth. Hi, thank you very much. So what evidence does this report offer to support its finding that Russia has been trying to influence U.S. domestic energy markets by exploiting social media? They reached out to a lot of the biggest social media companies and and those companies turned over a lot of posts from some of the same Russian agents who were caught up in the Mueller investigation recently. These were meme-like posts that were created by some of those agents, typically to take the side of environmentalists in in different controversies surrounding oil and gas development, new pipelines. Sometimes they took the other side and and made fun of the not-in-my-backyard types who didn't want renewable energy or clean energy projects in their area. But mostly it was pretty clear that these posts were designed to inflame fears from people who have environmental concerns or health concerns about uh, typically fossil fuel development. So, Tim, we've looked at some of these posts. They are rather provocative. You know, there's one that has a a woman. Maybe she's a girl. She's looking at the planes. It says, love water, not oil, protect our mother. Stand with Standing Rock and hashtags for some of the Standing Rock concerns. And there's a flip side that shows a uh, shiny row of pipe connections. And then it shows a, a dump, really. And that's what it looks like after protesters came through. Trash everywhere posted by something called Maybe America First and Stand for Freedom. These certainly look like they were designed to inflame conflict. Yeah, it's pretty clear. I think if you think about all the other things that these Russian agents have been accused of doing, uh, there are trolls in in every sense of the word, at least from from what we know of the allegations. One thing that I think is important to note about um, what this committee turned over is a lot of these posts don't have a lot of engagement. Their shares are relatively low. Their replies are relatively low. I think at best a couple of them maybe got a thousand or or a few thousand replies or, or, or types of engagement in some way. But a lot of them had just a handful. I think it's a 
pretty long bridge that you have to build to look at these posts and say, well, they are really influential in stirring up both sides here or one side or another. They didn't really get a whole lot of engagement in the end, most of them. We know about Russian attempts to sway the U.S. election, but why would Russia want to influence American opinions on energy policy? I think this is actually maybe the most interesting element in this case. You know, we've heard about the IRA and, and all the different ways they're allegedly tried to sow discord through the election, through homing in on, on racial issues, hot button issues like that. This is the first time that we've heard of them trying to stir things up in America in a way that would directly benefit Russia, potentially. You think about how the, the world of energy has changed in the past 10 years with the oil boom in the U.S. Russian production is up a lot, too. They're now the world's leading oil producer. And the most recent data suggests that that'll change in a few years, that the U.S. is about to start competing uh, with Russia for that title as the world's top oil producer. They're both huge natural gas producers, too, and they're both, especially increasingly in the U.S., going to be exporting a lot of that gas. So these two countries, in a very real way, on a global stage, are competing for markets in energy. And if there's something that Russia can do to undermine development of oil and gas in the U.S., that stands to benefit Russia because that's less supply that the U.S. can put on the market and more room for Russia to sell more of its supply. Now, um, if I understand the report correctly, Tim, it looked at these uh, Russian troll farms and said that about 4% of their activity was linked to this energy disinformation, whatever you want to call it, campaign. But some 8% was linked to the questions we know around the election. So the Russians seem to be taking this energy business pretty seriously, I gather. I think that was the other startling point about it, is how much energy, sorry, sorry for the fun, but how much energy they put behind this, how much of their resources they devoted to this particular topic. And it goes back to this idea of, of Russia and the U.S. competing on the global stage. This is something that can really benefit them. The outcome, if it were successful, would be to, you know, undermine production in the U.S., undermine the country's ability to get newfound supplies of oil and gas from the center of the country to coastal ports where it's exported. Now, Representative uh, Lamar Smith, chairman of the House Science Committee, is well known for his climate change denial and, of course, has been pretty friendly to oil and gas uh, during his 30 years in Congress, uh, being from Texas. To what extent does that uh, affect the credibility of this report, do you think? Well, I don't want to personally make any judgments on the credibility, but I think one thing to note about the committee and the staff that investigated it is that it wasn't a bipartisan effort. This was from Republican leadership on the committee. Of course, they have the majority on the committee. And while a lot of studies or in reports and investigations that come out of congressional committees like this are done on a bipartisan basis, this one was not. This was something that we've heard from the Democratic staff that they did not even know about. And so it is you know, politically pretty obvious to say, well, right now, if you're a Republican in D.C. and you can point to what's going on in this sort of soft conflict between Russia and the United States, one that has embroiled President Trump's administration so much and say, well, hey, it's not just the president. There aren't just implications here, Republican versus Democrat. Here's another issue where Russian trolls allegedly came after a part of U.S. society that is really not all that partisan. Of course, 
typically, I think Democrats are going to be friendlier to environmentalists. But, you know, we all benefit from having a, a robust energy industry, especially if we have one that is producing more and selling more and, and creating more economic activity than one of our top geopolitical rivals. So for the committee to come out and say, hey, it's not just a thing that is affecting President Trump, it's affecting the American economy. There are, are reasons to think that that would be politically beneficial to a, a group of Republicans in Washington right now. Tim, the report also makes the claim that, quote, the Kremlin is manipulating environmental groups in an attempt to carry out their agenda. And uh, I guess last June, Chairman Smith sent a letter to the Treasury Secretary, Stephen Mnuchin, claiming that shell companies and private foundations were passing Russian money to big uh, environmental groups here in the United States. Those are pretty damning claims. How fair are those claims? And, and how are the environmental nonprofits responding to those kind of charges? You hear those claims a lot in Washington these days. Personally, I'd like to see more evidence on that first. I don't know how much veracity there is to those claims. It's important to note that there are legitimate concerns that these groups have. Even if there are some Russian trolls out in the internet trying to incite fears, well, you know, pipelines can pose a lot of risks to the environment. There are a lot of studies out there that suggest that living near a well site in particular can be dangerous to health in one way or another. And they're very legitimate concerns. Tim Puko is a energy policy reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Tim, thanks so much for taking the time with us today. Thanks so much for having me. Off to Atlanta, Georgia now for our regular check-in on the world beyond the headlines with Peter Dykstra. Peter's an editor with Environmental Health News at ehn.org and dailyclimate.org. Hi there, Peter. What did you find this week? Hi, Steve. You know, there are a lot of rivers in a lot of countries like India and China that may have a good claim to be the world's dirtiest river. Oh, yeah? That's absolutely true. But the Sitaram River, which runs through Jakarta, the capital city of Indonesia, has a fantastic claim. So what's going on there? Well, they have 2,000 textile mills upstream from uh, Jakarta, 10 million people in Jakarta. 80% of them rely on the river for everything from uh, household water to drinking water. Uh, there are sewage problems. There are trash problems. And the Indonesian government is launching an effort to clean the river up. Yeah, how are they going to fix all that? Well, they say by dredging the bottom of the river, which is heavily polluted, uh, there are lead pollution problems there. Uh, they're going to tighten the laws about uh, dumping into the river and finally enforce the laws. They've been largely unenforced, and they say they can make the river drinkable by the year 2025. That's a long ways to wait if you can't afford bottled water. Hey, what else do you have for us today? Well, it was almost two years ago to the day that a Honduran activist named Berta Caceres uh, was murdered in her home. Yeah, she was a Goldman Prize winner a few years ago for her work to stop a dam that was destroying her local community. Uh, that's right. And uh, just this past week, they arrested a man who's said to be the mastermind of her murder. His name is Roberto Davis Castillo. He's a former Honduran intelligence uh, officer who became an executive in the electric company that's building the dam. And uh, where did they pick him up? They picked him up at the airport. He was trying to flee the country on his way to Houston. Now, 
Latin America is not a great place for environmental activists, as you've told us in the past. Yeah, we mentioned a few weeks ago that there were nearly 200 environmental activists and earth defenders killed around the world in the, in the past year, in 2017. 60% of those were in Latin America. So what are the Latin American and Caribbean nations going to do about this? Well, something promising happened within the past week. 24 Latin American and Caribbean nations signed a pact promising, among other things, that environmental defenders uh, would be better protected. And if, if there were future murders, that they would be fully investigated and prosecuted. It sounds good, but um, so far they really haven't been able to protect these people. Right. Hey, uh, what do you have for us from the History Vault today? Let's go back to 1925, the state of Tennessee. The Tennessee legislature passed the Butler Act. And the Butler Act made it illegal to teach evolution in Tennessee public schools or in Tennessee public universities. Oh, yeah, that led to the Scopes monkey trial, as I recall. Uh, that's right. And where you have monkeys, you're going to have a circus. It was a show trial to end all show trials. John Scopes was a substitute high school teacher who was convicted of teaching evolution. He was fined $100. That fine was overturned on appeal. Yeah. And uh, as I recall, uh, in the 60s, there was a movie called Inherit the Wind. Uh, Spencer Tracy played Clarence Darrow, who was John uh, Scopes's lawyer. And there were a lot of stars in, in that movie. And I guess the issue is still relevant today, huh? It is relevant today. The Butler Act stayed on the books, actually, until 1967. But in this day and age, in 2018, we still have battles over evolution versus creationism teaching in science classes, in school boards, in states, and local jurisdictions across the country. So maybe that means we haven't evolved as much as we thought. Thanks, Peter. Peter Dykstra is with Environmental Health News. That's ehn.org and dailyclimate.org. We'll talk to you again real soon. Okay. Thanks a lot, Steve. Talk to you soon. And there's more on these stories at our website, loe.org. If you like what you hear on Living on Earth, please join us with a gift of $5 or more. Just go to loe.org and click on Donate at the top of the page. And thank you. The North Atlantic Ocean Conveyor Belt, better known as the Gulf Stream, carries heat from the tropics along the U.S. East Coast and then over to Northern Europe. In the summer, it also carries game fish like tuna and bonito as far north as New England. These big fish scoot back south as winter comes on, but... Tiny tropical fish larvae, babies that were also caught up in the Gulf Stream, lack the fins and strength to make it back to warmer waters, and they typically perish. Unless, and it's a big unless, they wash in close to shore and are rescued by volunteers and scientists. Living on Earth's Noble Ingram has our story. It's a warm September Saturday, and a crowd has gathered on a rocky cove at Fort Wetherill Park in Jamestown, Rhode Island. The beach is peppered with plastic tubs and clipboards. A team of scientists and volunteers is pulling a massive net called a seine net full of flopping silver fish through the shallows. But these are not the fish they're looking for. Along the shoreline, four divers waddle slowly into the water. Each carries a Tupperware container and what looks like a small butterfly net. The water is clear and the sun is shining, but this is no ordinary fishing trip. 
This is a rescue mission. These fish are gonna, they're, they're gonna die because of the water turning cooler as the fall and winter comes. So, um, hey, might as well take the opportunity to rescue them. That's Leonore Damaris. She's a longtime scuba diving enthusiast and a member of the New England Aquarium Dive Club, a volunteer organization that often partners with the aquarium. As she explains, the group has come to Rhode Island in search of an unusual kind of fish that desperately needs saving. It is a hunt because you're hunting for them. You're just not killing them when you find them deliberately, right? You're, you're rescuing them from a certain death to a, to a possible, possible survival. These threatened sea creatures aren't native, but they're not invasive either. They've been spotted all throughout New England, and just over 100 miles away on Nantucket Island, the Mariah Mitchell Aquarium has a small collection of them. On a July afternoon, a staff intern named Jack leads a tour into a room of bubbling fish tanks. Most of the animals here are locals, including the aquarium's beloved Atlantic lobster, Clementine. But two tanks hold flashier foreigners. Our first uh, tropical stray that we have here is our buffalo trunkfish. It was collected two years ago in Madigate Harbor. And what we suspect is these fish, they spawn somewhere in the Caribbean or, you know, somewhere subtropical, like off the Carolinas. And as juveniles, when they were really weak, they got caught in the Gulf Stream, which is a big current that makes its way up the U.S. eastern seaboard. And there's a little spigot of it that comes out towards Massachusetts here. As Jack explains... This tropical fish was found here in New England after riding ocean currents for hundreds of miles. Now three years old, this blue blob is about the size of an apple, with a face that's strangely reminiscent of an Easter Island stonehead. It's known as a Gulf Stream orphan. As a little baby, you know, this buffalo trunkfish was the size of a blueberry when we caught it. As Jack points out, the fish has grown fast, and now it's attracting some serious attention from visitors. He's got a lot of personality. Yeah. Hi. Oh, you're very handsome. Hi. I think you're my friend. I wouldn't mind finding one of you. He kind of looks like a truck of some kind, or like a weird UFO. <laughs> he loves eating live shrimp. And so we lie. <laughs> the buffalo trunkfish is not the only tropical species to be carried into New England. Others include bright yellow spotfin butterfly fish and Atlantic blue tangs, relatives of the Pacific fish featured in the Finding Nemo and Finding Dory films. After the tour, Jack steps outside onto the beach. What's the best thing you've caught? Um, personally, ever, um, a flying gonard was a really rare tropical that we caught uh, five years ago. It's this beautiful fish with bright iridescent blue wings, usually only found in the Caribbean. We had it at the aquarium for four years, and it got so big we donated it to the New England Aquarium, I believe. As an adult, the flying gonard looks like a glowing purple frisbee, and biologists at the New England Aquarium were thrilled to receive it. One in particular, Mike O'Neill, manages the giant ocean tank there and is completing a Ph.D. studying Gulf Stream orphans. So uh, we met the Mariah Mitchell Association um, at the Hyannis Ferry and received this flying gonard from their facility. And they had him set up in a nice temperature-controlled cooler, um, very well packed. Raising a captured tropical orphan is no simple task. Five years in, that flying gonard died from a bad eye infection. But plenty of other orphans at the aquarium have survived and thrived. 
And for Mike, gazing into the New England Aquarium's vast Caribbean collection, saving these fish from a deadly fate drives his studies. We went down for one of the field collecting trips, and I could not believe that the fish that we were going to be bringing back we would find normally in the Caribbean. And one of the first fish that we found was the permit. When we found it, a very small, plain silver fish. Mike nods at the tank and points to a glistening fish the size of a bicycle. But it's actually one of the two largest fish in our giant ocean tank right here. They get to be maybe 100 pounds or so and a couple feet long. It was like an out-of-body experience at first being like, we could raise this up and bring it back to the aquarium and it could live in the giant ocean tank for a decade or more and be this, this massive animal. As Mike explains, even the mighty permit was found as a tiny gray speckle. That might be the biggest challenge to finding orphans. Unlike the colorful adults we recognize, juvenile tropical fish look mostly like seafloor pebbles. That brown blob is a trunkfish. So you can see his little mouth and his two eyes there. So when we collect them, they're teeny tiny. Then they get about football size when they're full grown. That looks like a rock. <laughs> yep. Yeah, so that's one of the ones that when you come across, it's usually like just sheer luck that you happen to be standing in the right spot. And then as you're looking through it, instead of looking at pebbles, you're like, oh, wait, this one actually has fins and he's alive. That luck is critical, and not just for the rescuers. As Leonore mentioned earlier, Gulf Stream orphans can tolerate New England's warm summers. But when water temperatures plummet in the fall, fish that can't stand the cold die. And that brings us back to Jamestown in September. Mike O'Neill is here, along with his colleague, Mike White. The pressure is on to find these orphans, White says. They're going to die. It's, it's inevitable. They will die with probably within the next month. So if we can get it and bring it back and use it in our exhibits, it sends a big message out. So uh, it's very important. But so far, this year's haul isn't looking promising. Three hours in, a few divers have made sightings, but every net is still empty. One of the divers who's with the aquarium saw spot fin, but didn't have any luck in catching him. Nothing in the nets yet, but uh, we're going to try the seining and see what, uh, what we come up with there. Each time the seine net comes in, Mike and the dive club find a new tangle of fish, but they're all locals. We don't have anything tropical in this guy. Then, amid the controlled chaos of another hall, a pair of divers head over to Mike with a gallon-sized plastic tub. Mike points to a brown spot swimming in their catch. That little dark guy with the red eye is a permit. Permit. Oh, my God, little baby permit. You kidding me? Yeah. Like that dark, huh? Yep, that's stress coloration. He's, he's figuring out why everyone's looking at him. Potentially a successfully caught Gulfstream orphan? Yep, that permit is definitely on the Gulfstream orphan list. Definitely at that size. That guy's maybe, maybe half an inch long, something like that. They'll grow up to be very, very large. Mike hands the tub and its future 50-pound fish back to the divers. The proud rescuer poses for a photo with the permit. For now, the dive club will have to be content with their single rescued orphan. Fish-wise, a little bit left to be desired. Um, we did get a few reports of tropical fish, and we have one permit in hand. So from a New England Aquarium perspective, not ideal for the collection animals, but for the Gulfstream Orphan Project, definitely excellent data. Weather turned out great. Dive conditions were perfect, so can't ask for much more. They overall still definitely worth it? Oh yeah, absolutely. Particularly to see future marine biologists in training out here and getting wet and learning about their native environment. It's the way to go. Oh, look at that. 
Every fall, the New England Aquarium Dive Club's event gives citizen scientists of all ages the chance to save just a few tropical fish caught in the region's cooling waters. Thanks to this year's outing, more people are now enlisted orphan rescuers, and one tiny permit here gets to make it past October. For that, at least, it seems safe to call it. Mission accomplished. For Living on Earth, I'm Noble Ingram in Jamestown, Rhode Island. Northern right whales have reason to sound mournful. They're lonely. Though it's been illegal to hunt them since 1935, the numbers of this favorite target of the whaling industry are down to about 450 and moving ever closer to extinction. The warming ocean has prompted them recently to move north from their usual summer feeding grounds in the Gulf of Maine into Canada's Gulf of St. Lawrence. Canada has fewer rules protecting them from ship strikes, and some 18 of these rare giants died this past season alone. And now comes a report that this already critically endangered population has produced no new calves in the past year. To learn more, Living on Earth's Jenny Doring spoke with Regina Asmuta Silvia of the nonprofit Whale and Dolphin Conservation. So, Regina Asmuta Silvia, why do we think that there have been no right whale births this year off the coast of the U.S.? So right whales are an intensely studied species because they are so critically endangered. So there are a number of dedicated surveys that happen in what has been their dedicated calving area. And there haven't been, there have been very few whales that have shown up there and none with calves. And there's also intensive surveys that are happening in Cape Cod Bay, which is another winter, early spring habitat for them. And there's been no calves sighted in that area as well. How unusual is this? It's unprecedented. We've never, ever, ever had a year where we didn't have a single calf born to the population. And how many whales are in the population as a whole? Probably between 430 and 450 at best. But I understand, like, not a lot of those are females, right? No. So the unfortunately, because of human impacts, the population impacts have been more harmful to females at this point. So there's probably only about 100 breeding females left. Why is that? Why are the females suffering more? We always do. <laughs> this is a good question. I mean, I think... I think that they tend to be more coastal oftentimes. They tend to spend a lot more time at the surface, particularly if they're having calves. So they're in areas where if they get pregnant, they need to feed more. So I, th- I think that they're more susceptible to a lot of human impacts just because of their life history, their, what they need to go through um, so that they just tend to be in more risky areas. So if you could tell me a bit more about like why would they not be having any new calves this year, what could be affecting that? I think it's a combination of things. It's not one particular issue, but the biggest issues that they're facing right now are fishing year entanglements and vessel strikes. But we know that even if they can survive a fishing year entanglement, that there's what is referred to as a sublethal effect. And so the stress that that entanglement put them under then causes a lot of the stress to their body, increase in stress hormones. That makes it a little bit harder for them to get pregnant or to carry a pregnancy to full term. That's one issue. The other thing is that they may not just be getting fat enough is climate is changing and their food resources are moving around and they're looking for maybe alternative food. It might not be as is healthy for them. It might not be make them as fat as they should be. And so females need to get really, really fat to be able to re- produce those hormones that allow them to ovulate. So it's probably a combination of those things. 
So let's talk a little bit about why why is this important? Why does this matter on a larger scale? And what role do right whales play in the environment? My favorite thing to talk about is um, whales are an incredibly important part of our ecosystem. And there's emerging research that's coming out and, and confirming that they play this incredibly important role as the ocean gardener. So we need phytoplankton. The, the planet, humans, we need phytoplankton. And it, that produces half of our oxygen. It, it is the base of the marine food web. It sustains fish stocks. It takes in carbon dioxide when it photosynthesizes. And so it, it sequesters carbon. It fights climate change. So we need phytoplankton. And what phytoplankton need are whales because they can't root into the soil. So they can't get their nutrients the way that a plant on land would. So you need the nutrients brought to them. And that's where whales come in. So whales are great at diving and they can do lots of things deep. But what they can't do when they're at depth is they can't poop. So bathroom breaks are all at the surface. And it's those bathroom breaks that are fertilizing phytoplankton at the surface. So that's where they get phosphorus and iron and all the things that they need. So they literally are tending this this forest in the ocean that we need to survive. So if we need phytoplankton and phytoplankton need whales, then we need whales. And right whales, along with a lot of other whale species, play that really integral role. And they're not eating the phytoplankton directly, right? What what are they feeding on? So for North Atlantic right whales, they're feeding on a, a different kind of plankton, a zooplankton. It's a tiny little animal called a copepod. And so the copepods are grazing on the phytoplankton. So they're eating these tiny little animals, which also kind of free float around at the surface. And they require ocean currents to kind of concentrate them to a point where the right whales can feed on them. So uh, right whales are very dependent on a healthy climate and a healthy planet to be able to do their job because they need these physical parameters to concentrate their food for them. Um, You talked about how entanglements in fishing gear is really hurting these whales and making it more difficult for them to get pregnant. What kind of gear is that and why does that happen? Why do they get tangled up? So primarily what they're getting entangled in is a kind of gear that we refer to as a fixed fishing gear. And it's gear that's set out there and left to fish and then retrieved at another point. Um, lobster, crab, gill netting, uh, hagfish. Those are, I think, the things that people are more familiar with in this area where all those pretty colorful marker buoys that you see at the surface off the coast are marking some vertical line that's at the bottom attached to a trap. And um, certainly the snow crab fishery in Canada is where there were a lot of entanglements last year. And I think it's incredibly important to clarify that this is not intentional. Fishing gear has been changing and and evolving so that ropes that used to be made of hemp or natural fibers, which might have deteriorated a little bit more quickly, are now being made out of plastic polymers and so that they're more sturdy for the fishermen. But that means that they're stronger and they're more sturdy when a whale gets entangled into them too. And there's no evolutionary adaptation that says that they should be worried about this. So they're in places, they're doing what they're supposed to do, they're socializing, they're feeding, they're, you know, chatting, they're doing whatever, and they will bump into gear. What they seem to do, though, is that they roll into it. It's kind of like they choose the path of least resistance. So if it doesn't, and I'm, I'm speculating here, but if it, if it doesn't feel good when you're pulling against it, then roll, and maybe that won't, you're not pulling against it anymore, but now you've become even more entangled in it. So they, they do tend to roll into the gear. That exacerbates the entanglement. It's really, really strong, long-lasting, like I said, plastic kind of lines that they're getting entangled in that aren't going to deteriorate in any way, shape, or form. And so uh, now, six months later, they've got a piece of gear that's literally either acted as a tourniquet and cut off a blood supply, sawed into tissue or bone, resulting infections will kill them. And it's a really horrible way to die. Um, In the past year, Regina, 18 North Atlantic right whales were found dead, 12 of which were found as far north as the Gulf of St. Lawrence. 
in Canada. And how is the lack of right whale births this year connected to this unprecedented death rate that we saw this past year? It's devastating. If you want to recover an endangered population, you need to recruit more than you kill. <laughs> so if you had 18 die, then you need more than 18 born to even try and just mildly offset that. So to to have 18 dead and then no cabbage born is is really definitely adding another nail to the coffin. So you mentioned that climate change is causing their food source, copepods, to move around. How much understanding do we have of that movement? And what do you think the whales know? Whales know a whole lot more than we do. <laughs> I mean, certainly their distribution changing is telling us that they know a whole lot more than we do. So if they're not finding what they want, where they used to get it, they're going someplace else to look for it. We have no idea how they find their food. Not a clue. So we don't know if it's an acoustic detection. We don't know. Theoretically, they don't have this great olfactory functioning, but I don't know that we really understand all that that well either. So whatever senses that they're using to find food, they're way better at it than we are. The studies that have been done um, by the Center for Coastal Studies in Cape Cod Bay show that they won't even open their mouths if that concentration of copepods isn't isn't enough. How they figure that out, we don't know. But they the copepods that they feed on are typically we're feeding on in the Gulf of Maine are very temperature dependent. And so if they're we're having issues with the Gulf of Maine warming faster than the rest of the North Atlantic, those concentrations of that particular kind of copepod seem to be diminishing. There's a, researchers at Dalhousie University that are looking at the copepods that they're feeding on the Gulf of St. Lawrence, and it's a different species. It's an Arctic species, and somehow they've figured out that it's there and that that's a, an alternative food source for them. Do you see hope for next year? You know, Do you see this population recovering? I always see hope. I can't fathom that we would allow them to go extinct. I mean, there's, we did this, we can undo it. So I think we just have to figure out and be creative and, and be thoughtful and, and everybody has to kind of pull together to do it. And then there's a lot of work being done with Woods Hole right now, trying to look at how to develop gear that doesn't have that vertical line in the water. There's the National Marine Fisheries Service is holding some subgroups that are trying to look at either implementing ropeless gear or a weaker line gear. Um, we've already done sort of a good job a little bit, I, I think, in the U.S. with reducing ship strikes. We need to do that in Canada. And I think that there's hope. And I also think that they're not our whales. They belong to everybody. We all need them. So that means that everybody has a say in this and everybody has something they can do. And so, you know, if we know that a change in climate is a problem, then we just can, everybody collectively can do something to help with that too. So those sort of old adages about recycling and reusing, they add up and they, they are meaningful. So we all have a stake in this. Regina Asmutis Sylvia is senior biologist with Whale and Dolphin Conservation. She spoke with Living on Earth's Jenny Doring. Coming up, catching up with humpback whales in their Caribbean love nest. That's just ahead here on Living on Earth. Stay tuned. Support for Living on Earth comes from the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation and from a friend of Sailors for the Sea, working with boaters to restore ocean health. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Tens of thousands of dead starfish, crabs, and other sea creatures recently washed up on beaches in the U.K., Scientists are blaming the deaths on a severe cold snap that brought freezing temperatures and snow to much of Europe. Wildly fluctuating weather is consistent with what scientists expect from a changing climate. MacArthur Genius and noted ecologist Carl Safina says we shouldn't be surprised. In the 90s, we used to hear that global warming was coming. Now, every place I go, there is 
something going on that has to do with the fact that the climate is warmer than it used to be. Indeed. So how exactly is the warming, is the climate disruption affecting the the oceans and the plants and animals that live there? Well, in in a variety of different ways. I mean, it depends a little bit on what system in the ocean you're talking about. Things in the tropics are having a a harder time as water warms up, and then the things in the temperate latitudes are moving toward the poles. So you see some things that can move quickly, like fish, spending more of their year farther north than they used to. Things that cannot move very much, like the lobsters in Long Island Sound, where I live, you know, they're sort of trapped in Long Island Sound. If you move north, you wind up on the Connecticut Turnpike. So the lobsters over the last 15 years have basically died. Almost all the lobsters in Long Island Sound have died. And a friend of mine who used to make a living catching them there, he is now a nurse. Talk to me about ocean acidification. How is this related to the warming and what exactly is happening to the oceans? All of our combustion, all all the engines that we run, all the forests and farms that we are burning, that sends carbon dioxide up into the air, and a lot of it reaches the face of the ocean, the surface of the ocean. At that interface, a lot of it dissolves into the water. When it dissolves in the water, it creates a short chemical reaction that releases hydrogen atoms. And those hydrogen ions in the water are measured in a way that we call pH, H for hydrogen. And the more of them there are, the more we consider it to be more acidic or more toward the acid end of the pH scale. And everything that makes a shell in the ocean, their shells are getting thinner and weaker or the larval forms can't even make their first shells and they quickly die and dissolve or become fatally deformed. You know, and it's not a few small little obscure things. It's things like all of our shellfish and all of the coral reefs of the world and much of the plankton. That's really an enormous, enormous effect and an enormous change. So, you know, a lot of humanity enjoys eating fish. How are our fish stocks doing around the world right now? Well, it's interesting. If you had asked me this uh, around 20 years ago, which I think you did ask me this around 20 years ago, I would have said that basically all of the fish populations in the world are being rapidly depleted. And that was true at the time. Since then, because of a lot of effort that we expended in the United States to improve the federal laws that govern fishing, We have recovering trends in many of the important ocean fish that are fished commercially and that people like to eat. Some of the inshore fish, like some of the flounders that we have in our region, we have summer flounder that's been doing a lot better. We have black sea bass that's kind of exploding in population size and number. Another thing that was pretty interesting was that There's a fish that people do not eat called menhaden. It's related to herring, but people don't eat it. It's got an incredibly high oil content, which means also it's got a lot of calories. And people usually catch them in gigantic quantities and create fish meal and animal meal out of them that are fed to uh, livestock or, or used in fish farms. And they were heavily depleted, but five years ago, a cap was put on them. And they couldn't catch as many. 
and they started recovering noticeably almost immediately. And because they are such high-calorie fish, everything that eats fish was moving into the coastal waters. We would be out fishing in my boat just a mile or two from shore, and there'd be whales around the boat. There were schools of sharks in the surf behavior that people never thought these kinds of sharks would do, and they were just chasing these fish all over the place. It became an ocean that I had never seen before. It was not not the ocean of my youth or, or my whole previous lifetime, and it made me wonder what else the coast must have looked like that we don't even imagine in the incredible abundance that was here, that most of which we've lost. But this was a, a tremendous recovery trend. In the coral reefs, I understand there's some new research that looks at how plastic is getting all entangled in, in those corals and causing a lot of problems. What's going on with that? It's not uncommon to see plastic tangled around coral. Of course, as there is wave action or currents, it helps to break the coral up. Anything that attaches to coral usually grows bacteria or does something that is bad for coral while it's stuck on them. It can shade them out. The bacteria can grow on that item and then jump over to the coral. It can create surfaces that baby coral cannot attach to and get growing in life, or they may attach to the wrong thing where they they simply can't survive. That part is not just a problem with plastic. It's even a problem with seaweed. On a lot of coral reefs where there's been too much fishing, the fish that eat seaweed are so depleted that the reef gets overgrown with seaweed, and then the the fronds of the seaweed grow bacteria that can infect the corals. So the Trump administration recently announced their intention to allow offshore oil and gas drilling for nearly all U.S. coastal waters. Uh, Carl, I believe you wrote an entire book about the Deepwater Horizon oil blowout. What did you call it? A sea in flames? Yeah. So, so talk to me about how, how might more oil drilling affect the ocean and, and coastal areas of the U.S.? Yeah, you know, most people think that oil exploration and drilling is bad because you get these occasional catastrophic spills like the Exxon Valdez and you get these blowouts like the Deepwater Horizon. But the real catastrophe is the oil that we just take every day, the daily grind of extraction and everything that goes with it. You have to build big ports. Everything gets dirty. You have to build big refineries. You have to build highways. And it's this daily grind that really creates over time more damage than the catastrophic spills, as damaging as they are. Then when you're exploring, you have to make a tremendous amount of noise, noise that Many marine mammals and whales cannot take. It can sometimes deafen them or cause them to panic from the deep and get the bends as they come to the surface too quickly, meaning that they can die or their eardrums can rupture. They may not be able to hear their own sonar, so they won't be able to figure out where the food is that they're trying to hunt. There's a lot of stuff about this whole business that is nasty. You talked about the rising fish stocks as a positive sign. Come the end of the day, what gives you hope these days, Carl Safina? Well, you know, I I have a definition of hope, and hope to me is the ability to see how things could be a lot better. Plastic is a problem. Okay, well, we know that there are other materials being developed. 
energy is a problem. We know that there are clean energy technologies that are starting to really take hold in some other countries of the world. We see that when people do the right things and work toward the right things, that the problems either get better or they get solved. And um, that's what gives me hope. Prize-winning ecologist Carl Safina is author of several books about the ocean and animals. Carl, thanks so much for taking time with us today. Always a great pleasure, Steve. Earlier in the show, we mentioned there have been no northern right whale calves seen off the Atlantic coast so far this year, but other whales in the region, including humpbacks, are doing much better. Known for their alluring songs, Atlantic humpbacks spend their summers in nutrient-rich cold northern waters, where they fatten up on krill and small fish, and then head south for the winter to cozy up, mate, and give birth. A while back, living on Earth's Bobby Bascom found the humpbacks delighting tourists just offshore in the Dominican Republic. Some 50 visitors from around the world lean over the rail of the whale-watching boat Porta Mia. They scan the clear blue waters of the Caribbean Sea, searching for humpback whales. Oh, there he is, right there. Right there, he's up. Can you see the whale? Yeah. Maybe it's a she, actually. Oh, right there. There are three separate populations of humpbacks worldwide. One group lives in the Southern Hemisphere, another in the Pacific Ocean, and a third in the Atlantic Ocean. And the three populations never meet. The North Atlantic group feeds in the Gulf of Maine or off the coast of Greenland and Norway, but almost all of them come here to the Dominican Republic to mate or give birth. It makes them Dominican citizens. They're born here, they hold Dominican passports, they go north to feed, they always come back to the country where they were born. Kim Bedall is a marine mammal specialist. She's been studying humpback whales for 30 years here in the Dominican Republic. They do not eat here for five to six months every year, so they're living on a stored layer of body fat that they've accumulated in their northern feeding grounds. Baby humpback whales are drinking 200 liters of milk every day and growing at 100 pounds daily. And a mother is producing all that milk, and she's not feeding herself. So a female humpback whale will lose about 25% of her total body weight the winter she gives birth. No one knows for sure why the North Atlantic humpbacks choose the Dominican Republic for their nursery, but Bedall has a theory. This is probably the closest, most appropriate place where the entire population can mix. Uh, the mother might be a whale that feeds in the Gulf of Maine, and the father might be a whale that feeds in Norway, and that guarantees a genetic difference in order to uh, produce healthy offsprings. A hydrophone the crew dropped into the water records the sounds of a lone male humpback trying to sweet-talk a female. There are actually more humpbacks in Dominican waters now than just a few decades ago. Since 1966, the population has risen from roughly 1,000 individuals to 16,000. North Atlantic humpbacks are no longer considered endangered, but Kim Bedall says that doesn't mean they're safe. 
Humpback whales are coastal animals. This brings them into contact with human activity. So if you combine Aboriginal whaling with entanglements in fishing gear, ship strikes, global warming, contamination of their feeding areas and their reproductive areas, there's a lot of threats to humpback whales in all of the world's oceans. Of all the humpbacks in the world's oceans, the Dominican group is arguably the best protected. Our National Marine Mammal Sanctuary here in the Dominican Republic is sister sanctuary to Stellwagen Bank National Marine Mammal Sanctuary off the coast of Boston. So we're protecting them here in their reproductive area and then off the coast of Boston in one of their feeding areas. And that's where all those whales are heading now, to feast on krill in the cold, food-rich waters of the North Atlantic. For Living on Earth, I'm Bobby Bascom in Samana, Dominican Republic. Your comments on our program are always welcome. Call our listener line anytime at 800-218-9988. Our email address is comments at LOE.org. And visit our webpage at LOE.org. On the next Living on Earth, paleontologists have found a new cache of fossils in the Bears Ears region. The site is enormous. It's the largest Triassic bone bed in the state of Utah. The amount of fossils that we're finding in there means it's one of the densest, probably in the country, if not the entire world. But with the monument shrunk, the find is more vulnerable to looters. That's next time on Living on Earth. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Savannah Christensen, Jenny Doring, Noble Ingram, Jamie Kaiser, Hannah Loss, Don Lyman, Helen Palmer, Ainsley O'Neill, Adelaide Chen, and Yolanda Omari. Tom Tiger engineered our show with help from Jake Rigo. Allison Learstein composed our themes. You can hear us anytime at LOE.org and like us, please, on our Facebook page, PRI's Living on Earth. And we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from you, our listeners, and from the University of Massachusetts, Boston, in association with its School for the Environment, developing the next generation of environmental leaders, and from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. Support also comes from the Energy Foundation, serving the public interest by helping to build a strong, clean energy economy. From Carl and Judy Fehrenbach of Boston, Massachusetts, and from Solar City, America's solar power provider. Solar City is dedicated to revolutionizing the way energy is delivered by giving customers a renewable alternative to fossil fuels. Information at 888-997-1703. That's 888-997-1703. PRI Public Radio International.